Well, stand with me if you would and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. This morning, if you would, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse number 13 here in just a moment. A couple of things real quickly. Um, as you heard Pastor Clayton praying, uh, Roger Clark uh, passed away on Thursday. Uh, had had quite a battle with ALS and uh, passed away Thursday evening. And uh, his the calling is today. Uh, from 1 to 4 at Meeks downtown, and uh, the service will be tomorrow at noon at Meeks. And so I know that Joellen would appreciate any who can come by. And then also I wanted to mention, uh, a few weeks ago I did a two-part series in the midst of the First Peter series uh, where I dealt with a um, kind of a driving force worldview that has affected a lot of our cultural uh, issues in the last several months. And um, I talked about the critical, uh, critical view or critical theory worldview as it stands against or is contrasted with the biblical worldview. And I just feel like that is so important that we understand that I put together a resource. Um, it is available at the Welcome Center, which is very simple. It'll fit in your Bible, but it will, will, will remind you and help you remember. It's very easy to get sucked into a worldview that seems to have a little truth and maybe a scripture quoted here and there, but it is not really in alignment with the truth of scripture. So pick these up, take as many as you want. We'll make more next week if we run out, but I think you'll find this helpful. If you want to share it with someone, it's just very simple, but it lays out the difference between that worldview that is driving um, some, of, some of the anti-societal movements and as, as it stands against the biblical worldview. So make sure that you pick that up. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. I'm going to need you to listen well and think well with me this morning. This is not uh, at least the, the third part of this message is, is, a, um, is a mind challenger, which means we'll be getting there about lunchtime, about noon, when everybody's always the sharpest, right? Okay, so I need you to really focus your attention. This is powerful truth, if we'll get it. Not the easiest text, but when we preach through a book of the Bible, we're going to deal even with the tough text. This is one of those. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Verse 17, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls 
were saved through water. Is that not the longest sentence you have ever heard in your life? Verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open or your copy of Scripture. If it's on your phone or iPad, keep it open because we're going to be looking at a couple of verses here in just a few moments. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you, God, that that all of Scripture is inspired of the Holy Spirit. It is God-breathed, and it is profitable to us to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to instruct us. And we believe, God, today that you have a word for us if we will have ears to hear. I ask, God, that you would help me, anoint me to speak with clarity, with boldness, with authority, and with simplicity And I pray, God, that you would help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which is from you. And let the word of God challenge and convict and change and transform and encourage us today, reminding us that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Bless this time as we study your word together, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's turn around and wave to someone or or nod at them and let them know you're glad they're here this morning. And then you may be seated this morning. One of these days we'll get back to fellowship. And the first time we do that, you're going to take 20 minutes before I get you back. I can tell that's going to happen. Uh, In her book, Because He Loves How Christ Transforms Our Daily Life, Elise Fitzpatrick writes this. Just in case you are unaware, identity theft occurs when someone steals your name and other personal information for fraudulent use. Most of us are dismayed by this new cyber age crime, and we would never assume that the theft of another person's identity is acceptable behavior. She goes on to say, the surprising reality, however, is that Christians are by definition people who have someone else's identity. They are called Christians because they take the identity of someone else, that is the Christ, Not only have you been given an identity that you weren't born with or that you didn't earn the right to use, but you are invited to empty the checking account and use all the benefits this identity brings. This is so much better than identity theft. It is an identity gift. I want to talk this morning for just a few minutes about Christ identity gift, what it means to have at our fingertips all that is provided for us in Christ as we take his identity in us. A couple of weeks ago, I, in my last message from First Peter, we talked about the importance of wearing the coat of Christ well. If you remember that, uh, in our relationships with others, in the world in which we walk, it's important that we wear Christ well, that we represent him well, that we wear his coat well. And so now today we move forward to this text. And this text, by the way, that I just read to you, you may have picked up on it, contains some of the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament. They just happen to fall in this text today. And so because we're preaching through this book, we're going to deal with it. 
But, but a couple of verses that are probably two of the more um, difficult and challenging scriptures in all of the New Testament to interpret. Look at verse 19 and 20. So he, Christ, went and he preached to the spirits in prison. Those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. We're going to talk about what it means that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, I want you to look here for just a moment. This, I want you to think with me because this is going to become really important today um, throughout this message. One of the things that I drive home repeatedly, I say over and over, is that when we are going to interpret the word of God we must understand the context. Where is it fitting? What, what is the subject being talked about? Because you can pick a verse and make it mean just about anything you want if it's not in the context um, of where it is originally stated. And these verses are two of those verses. We'll talk about some of the kind of wild ideas that people have given to this. But we're going to hopefully, when we leave today, understand that this is really a very powerful promise to us if we can wrap our minds around it. Here's what I want to do today. I'm just going to give you ahead of time so you know where we're going. I'm going to deal with three things. Number one, we're going to look at the possibility of suffering for those who have Christ's identity. That's us. Secondly, we're going to look at the expectation of suffering for those who have Christ's identity. And then thirdly, I want to talk about the victory over suffering that those who have Christ's identity can experience. Let's look at the first one um, first. The possibility of suffering for those with Christ's identity. Look one more time with me at verse 13 and 14. And, and here's what Peter writes. And who is he who will harm you if you are followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now, I want to begin just by making this very general statement. This is what Peter is saying in a very general way. He is saying that on the whole, just if you generalize it all, Christians are not so likely to suffer. If you just look at the world as a whole over the course of time and you look at our world today, Peter is saying in general, it is not a high likelihood that Christians will suffer. What Peter is saying is that the people who suffer the most are those who do wrong and they reap what they sow and therefore are just simply getting the consequences of what they probably have deserved. In other words, the employee who cheats on the job or the criminal who breaks the law or the injured person who takes a foolish risk to retaliate, they are generally speaking the people that pay the consequences and therefore suffer for their wrong behavior. The Christian is called to live a different kind of life. Peter says that we are to be eager to do good, that we, uh, we are to, to try to do what is right and what is kind. And Peter suggests to us that if we do that, we are far more likely to have an enjoyable life and a life that is at peace. Look at what Peter says in two verses that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. For he who would love life and see good days. Let's just stop for a moment. How many would love to have good life and good days. Raise your hand if you would like that. All of us would. 
So Peter says, here's the key for he who would love life and see good days. Let him keep his mouth shut. Okay, that's the the paraphrase. Let him refrain his tongue from evil. Or if you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. How many's mother told them that when they were growing up? All right. And and so if you want to love life and if you want to see good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. If you read the book of Proverbs, that's what Proverbs says. If you want to bless life, Do the right thing. Do the good thing. Follow the right path. And most likely, Peter says, the writer of Proverbs says, your life will be blessed. Now, the fact of the matter is Christians aren't the only ones who live good lives. They're not the only ones who keep their mouths shut. In fact, sometimes non-Christians are better than that than we Christians are. In the first century, Those who lived in a law and order society, there were many of them that were not believers. They were pagans, and yet they lived very upstanding lives. Everyone in this room, you have Christian or non-Christian friends who are good people. They live good lives. They do the right thing. They, they get to the work on time and they, they, they work a, a full day and they, they, they honor um, their position. They pay their taxes and they have blessed lives because of that, because they're doing good. And generally, they don't reap these horrible consequences. So Peter begins in verse 13. If you have your Bible open, he begins by simply saying, if you do good, who is it that's going to harm you? In other words, the general principle is you probably will not experience great suffering if you do what is right. Now, secondly, though it is unlikely, Christian suffering does remain a possibility. Peter doesn't say it is impossible. As a matter of fact, in verse 14, he says, but if you should suffer for righteousness sake. In other words, it is a possibility. Doing good may lead to hostile attacks. All of us have heard stories, maybe met people, maybe heard them share their testimony who have been persecuted overseas, missionaries who have lost their lives for the cause of Christ. That is a real possibility. And we also know that even in the culture in which we live today, there is a sense in which our culture is being driven in a way that that I think some of us can almost see the handwriting on the wall. The day may come when we too are experiencing persecution or at least being ostracized or marginalized because of our faith. This is not fatalism, it's just realism. Human nature is fallen and and you all understand God is being shoved out of our culture. People are shoving the word of God and absolute truth out of our culture. We are very much like they were in the book of Judges where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And when that happens, those who stand for truth, those who say, no, God's word says this, may in fact find themselves being ostracized and possibly even suffering some sort of persecution. There is today in our culture a rejection of absolute truth, of moral standards that we've grown up embracing. They're being rejected. There's an attack in many cases on Christian freedoms and speech. There is a suspicion and a rejection of those who believe that true is true and that truth is absolute. And when we take those stands, we may find ourselves on the other side and pushed out, marginalized, and possibly even Persecuted. So the question is, what happens then when we do experience some form of Christian suffering? What are we to do? Peter says we should claim the blessings and promises of God. 
Peter says in verse 14, if you do suffer for righteousness sake, he says, listen, you are blessed. It is a blessing. Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid of their threats because you will be blessed. Now, there aren't too many um, American Christians today. Let me take you back. 40, 50 years ago, a uh, doctrinal, I would say, heresy crept its way into the church. And that doctrinal heresy said that if you just live right, if you just claim the right thing and you live right and you're obedient, you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise, I guess. You'll have everything you need if you just live right. And, um, and so many in the church embrace that. And in fact, almost all of the church, evangelical church, has at some level been affected by that. And you mix that with our very individualistic ideal. And we want, we want happiness. We want life. We want things good. And, and so we were taught that if things aren't good, there's something wrong in your life. There's a lack of faith or something spiritual. And so we have not embraced suffering at all. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to be persecuted. We've rejected it. We have cast it out. We've rebuked it. We've said that's of the devil. But God's word says, how many want to do what God's word says? Not what we've been taught when it's wrong. Let's try that again. How many want to do what God's word says? God's word says, if you are, if you suffer, you're blessed. You're blessed. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. I'm smiling because you're not. Okay, if you smile, maybe I'll stop. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted the prophet's before you. We're supposed to rejoice when we suffer, when we're persecuted. Why? Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, it's not in the notes or neither is it on the screen, but Paul said, I want to know Christ, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. There is no better way to know Christ intimately than to experience suffering and to feel his presence and have him walk with you and say to you, I've been there, I feel it, I'm walking with you. We reject it, we want to curse it, we want to send it away. But Peter says, if it happens, you should embrace it, you should rejoice. You should consider yourself blessed. 20th century um, theologian, Carl Henry 1987, that was 33 years ago. I hate doing that because I started ministry in 1985 and to actually admit that I started that 35 years ago makes me feel really old. But nevertheless, 1987, 33 years ago, more than three decades ago, he said this, it is highly probable that in tomorrow's world, Christianity will need to fend for itself either in a secularized social milieu of intellectual atheism that empties the churches or in a society where religious sense of many coexisting gods saturate civic culture as did ancient paganism. Just hold that screen for a minute. 33 years ago, Christianity may have to fend for itself 
Because churches may be emptied by intellectual atheism that just says, ah, God can't do it. Or a pluralism that says every God is fine. 33 years ago, he said this may be happening. Look at the next screen. In one case, Christian orthodoxy will be charged with espousing the objective existence of a supernatural reality in an age when religion is presumed to traffic only in optional myths. We believe there really is a God. We believe in a supernatural God, but we're living in a world today in a culture that for the most part says that's a myth. Or in the other case, Christian orthodoxy will be charged anew with intolerance and with atheism because they deny everyone else's gods, violate public piety and its approval. Oh, they will be charged anew with intolerance and atheism because to deny everyone else's gods violates public piety and its approval of the plural gods. When I started pastoring in 1985, I never heard the concept that Christians were intolerant. That is, that is the mantra of the secular culture today. Because we believe Jesus is the only way, because we believe in absolute truth, we are considered intolerant. Carl Henry said 33 years ago, this time is coming. Folks, that time has come. We are here. So there is the possibility of suffering, which leads me to the second point, and that is the expectation of suffering. What, are we, what does God expect of us when we share his identity and we experience suffering? How should we respond? Here's what he says. Do not be afraid of their threats. Don't be troubled. This next verse is really important. This is verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing than for doing evil. Here's how we are to respond. Number one, don't be afraid or troubled if you do experience persecution or suffering because God knows. God already knows it. Don't, don't be freaked out. Don't, don't run from it. Don't be afraid or troubled because God already knows that's going to happen. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body, those who can persecute you, cause you to suffer, but cannot touch your soul. But fear him, that is God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows." So Peter would say to us, if you, if you experience suffering, don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. God knows this. God knows if a sparrow falls. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He surely knows if you are suffering. So don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Don't run from it. And then secondly, he would say in verse 15, live obediently. He says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Instead of fearing the persecutor or the one who is bringing suffering, you should fear Christ. You should reverence him, sanctify him, hallow him, make him reverent in your own life. Sanctify Jesus to the point of inward obedience 
that dictates your behavior in the world. I am going to, if I am suffering, I am going to hallow Christ in my heart to the point that instead of responding the way I want to respond, I'm going to be obedient to him and respond in godliness and in holiness. And thirdly, instead of fearing or fighting back against non-believers, we are to be ready to respond to their hostile arguments and questions about faith and specifically about our hope. And we are to do that with meekness or gentleness or respect. Look right here for just a moment. We will not win a world that is pressing against us if we fight back with hateful rhetoric or pressing back the way they press at us. It will not happen. If you have your Bibles, I want you to look at verse 15 again. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Please listen to me for just a moment. This is one of those context speeches, okay? I love that verse. Be ready always. We use it all the time. Everybody needs to be able to defend their faith. And if if somebody questions you, you need to be able to articulate what you believe. And that's all true. But this is specifically in the context of suffering. If you're being pushed back, if you're suffering, if you're being persecuted, your response is not to fight back. Your response is to be able to explain why you still have hope in Jesus. To respond with gentleness, with reverence, not with hateful rhetoric, not with, well, you're a jerk and you don't understand it. Not that I hate all sinners, not to point out sinners' sin. How many understand Sinners do sin. Sinners are supposed to sin. That's what they do. They don't need to be told on Facebook how bad a sinner they are. They need to see us instead respond by showing them the reason for the hope that's in us. This is the reason we believe what we believe. Paul is probably um, one of the greatest examples of this. Look at this. I love this text. Paul is in front of Festus and King Agrippa. And they are grilling him for his faith. And Paul makes his defense. And when he does that, Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you're crazy. You're mad. Too much learning has driven you crazy. And Paul said, I am not mad. Notice how kind he is, most noble Festus. But I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, that's Agrippa, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, he turns it to King Agrippa. Do you believe in the prophets? I know that you do believe. He he puts King Agrippa on on the hot seat. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice And those who sat with them, and when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. And then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Look at me for just a moment. So Paul is being grilled. He is is in prison for his faith. He is being grilled, and instead of fighting them, he simply is kind to them. And he shares the reason for the hope that is within him. He shares Christ. He shares the love of Jesus. They are puzzled by his kindness. They are interested in his God. And can I say to you, listen, 
If you will respond in like manner, not afraid when you're pushed back, not angry when you're pushed back, not angry back and hateful, but if you respond with kindness and share a reason for the hope that lies within you, those who formerly jeer at you may actually ask about your faith. Can I tell you, listen, patient endurance of suffering may become the greatest means of sharing our faith. If, listen, if your friends see, your friends that aren't Christians, if they see you respond in a godly way when people ridicule you and ostracize you because of your faith, if you keep your cool, I'm just trying to be as practical as I can, instead of fighting with him, you keep your cool and you just show the love of Jesus, that may become, listen, you can't argue someone into the kingdom, but you can show them the life and the love of Jesus. And you can show them the reason for the hope that lies within you. So what, what does Paul say or Peter say when you're being ridiculed, suffering? Don't fight back. Don't be troubled. But instead, sanctify yourself. Set it your part, a heart, heart apart to Christ, in obedience to Christ. And be ready, if there's a moment, to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. He didn't say run from suffering. He didn't say go hide out and cower in a corner. He didn't say fight back and get all over social media and make a fool of yourself. He said, instead, sanctify yourself to the Lord. And be ready always to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. It'll ultimately, Peter says in verse 16, it will bring shame on those who revile your good conduct, whether in this life or in the judgments. If it's the will of God, it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Listen to what John Piper writes. This is powerful. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. How many would love that? Wouldn't that be cool? One good moment to another and then to heaven. That's not what life is. Life's a whining and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads that God is for us in all of these strange turns. God's not just showing up afterwards to clean it up. He is plotting the course. He is managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. What is the expectation when we do suffer? It is to not be troubled, not be afraid, but instead trust him, sanctify ourselves to the Lord, and be ready always to give a reason for the hope that lies with us. Let me give you the third point. This is the one that's hard. The first two were easy. This one is a little tough. What about the victory over suffering for those who have Christ's identity? Let's read the text one more time. This is that long sentence I was talking about. Get this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh. Let me just stop there for a moment. I'm going to take this a piece at a time. I'm going to do it quickly. How many know Christ suffered for us? Raise your hand if you know that. So Christ, so he's been talking about our suffering, all right? This is why context is so important. He's, the whole thing has been about what we do if we suffer. Then he says, Christ also suffered for us once for sins, and he did it in our stead, the just for the unjust. That is, he who knew no sin became sin for us. The just for the unjust 
being put to death in the flesh. It just means what it says. He was crucified. His flesh was crucified. He was put to death on the cross. But he did this so that he might bring us to God. How many are glad Jesus took your sin and brought you to God? He did that, but he's put to death in the flesh. But look at the next phrase. But he is made alive by the Spirit. What does the Bible say? That on the third day Jesus rose from the dead. Romans eight eleven says, If the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, he'll quicken our mortal body. So what was the power that raised Jesus from the dead? It was the Spirit. So he died. He suffered just for the unjust to bring us to God. His flesh was killed. He was buried. But he was made alive by the Spirit. And then by that same Spirit, he also went and he preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. And there's also an antitype. I'll just, I'll read that later. Let's move on. Let me talk about this text. So what is Peter specifically saying? First of all, let me tell you this. In the context of first century culture, there was a strong belief in the spiritual realm. People in the first culture, not just Christians, but they believed that there was an evil spiritual realm and there was a good spiritual realm. Both pagan and Christians believed that there was a realm of spiritual beings. Persecution was more than just pagan or evil people. It was something that was motivated by the evil spiritual realm. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. When you're persecuted, when somebody speaks wrong of you, when they criticize you, when they ostracize you, you can be angry with them if you want, doesn't do you any good. But what's behind that is principalities and powers. There is a demonic influence that is behind that. That has always been the case. Say amen if you believe that. Now, some today argue against the spiritual realm, but as Christians, we understand that our opposition is still demonically and satanically motivated. It was Satan in the garden who messed with Adam and Eve. It was Satan who tried to get Jesus off course when he tempted him. And that's, it is Satan and his demonic spirits that are behind the opposition and any suffering or persecution that any of us might experience. It's very easy for us to get interested in the motivation of our opposition. But Peter's main purpose, here's what I want you to get. And we're not going to be much longer, but Peter's main emphasis emphasis is the victory that we have over this opposition. So Christ suffered. We identify with him. His suffering was not just. It was the just for the unjust. It was the righteous for the unrighteous, but it was sacrificial because it brought us to God. The suffering of Jesus, look at, look at me for just a moment. I'm going to try to make this as simple as I can. It ended, the suffering of Jesus ended when he said it is finished. When he died in the flesh, the suffering was over. It ended by him being put to death. But three days later, the spirit of God raised him to life. You see, death from his suffering did not destroy Jesus. And opposition, there should be a comma there instead of a period, opposition, persecution, even suffering will not destroy those who identify with Christ. Let me make this as simple as I can. When Jesus died and and he said, it is finished and he gave up the ghost, 
when he said that he was dead in the flesh, but it did not destroy his work because three days later, the spirit of God raised him from the dead. And then in his post-resurrection, after the resurrection, his post-resurrection state, it's my favorite screen. Just get this. You may not even find it humorous. I find it very humorous. In his post-resurrection state, here's how much we know. Jesus went somewhere to preach to something or to preach something to someone. Okay, that's how theologians have struggled with this. He went to preach to the spirits in prison. What in the world does that even mean? This is how much we know. In his post-resurrection state, he went somewhere to preach something to someone by whom also when he went, he preached to the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient when the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls were saved through water. Let's see if we can unpack this complex um, truth in about three minutes. Everybody ready to go with me, all right? There are some proposed options as to where and who Jesus preached to. Some say Christ went to preach to where disobedient supernatural powers were imprisoned. Some say that Christ went to hell and he preached to the spirits of people who were disobedient in Noah's day. Some say that Christ went and he preached to the Old Testament saints who were in paradise, like the, the man that was on the cross beside him today, I will be with you in paradise. Others say that Christ went and preached to everyone who died in the Old Testament and gave them some kind of second chance. I would reject that completely because that would suggest that, that they would have a whole new chance to come to Christ. That would be universalism. There's a couple of important things I want to share with you. Number one, the word spirits in the New Testament always refers to non-human spiritual being. Never does the word spirit refer to a human being unless it is qualified. The word that is used for dead human beings is always souls. Remember the souls that are under the altar of God in the book of Revelation. So the word spirits does not ever refer to human beings. So once right off the bat, we can say he is not preaching to humans, dead saints or dead ungodly people. He is preaching to spirits. The word preached is the Greek word kariso. And it's normally used in relationship to the kingdom of God or the preaching of the gospel. But it can simply mean that something was proclaimed. Something was declared. Now, I'm going to ask you to stretch with me. I know it's just a little bit afternoon and this is not the best time to stretch. You think this is bad now. Wait till we get to two o'clock and I'm doing with this with those folks who are ready for their afternoon nap. So you just hang with me for just a moment. In Genesis 6, right before the flood... The Bible says there were the sons of God. Sons of God are generally angels in the Old Testament. They can be fallen angels or godly angels. That the sons of God sinned with the daughters of men. What most theologians believe is that the sons of God were fallen angels who actually committed immoral acts with human women. And it was so ungodly and the world had become so ungodly that God destroyed the earth with the flood in Genesis chapter eight. Only Noah, his wife, their three sons and their wives were saved. Peter mentions this in his second letter, second Peter chapter two, verse four. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, 
But he cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Here is what most likely happened. It is that after his resurrection, please follow with me. After his resurrection, Jesus went to the prison where these fallen angels who had sinned in the days of Noah. That's the context. It's the days of Noah. He went and he declared to them, please get me. He's not giving them a chance. He is proclaiming to them that through his death and his resurrection, he has once and for all defeated their power. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, it says that Jesus disarmed principalities and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I would suggest to you that Jesus died in the flesh. His suffering ended. The Spirit of God raised him. He walked on the earth for 40 days. Remember the time when he said, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to my father. During that time when he was in and out, he went and he declared to those demonic, angelic, fallen beings who had created all kinds of havoc with human beings. He he declared to them, he carissoed, he preached to them that they are defeated once and for all. And in verse 22, he has now gone into heaven And is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Listen to me. Those whose identity in Christ, whose identity is in Christ, need not fear persecution or suffering that comes because Christ has proclaimed his victory. And just as he saved Noah, we'll talk about that in his final two minutes, and his family, He will save us as well. Look at this final text and I'm going to have you stand and we're going to close. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone, look at this, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. I want to make sure you get this. Look right here for just a moment. The word ascension is a key word. Uh, I think most of us know what it means, but it's when Jesus went back to heaven after being on earth for 40 days after his resurrection. What did he do when he ascended? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why is that so important? Because at his ascension, when he sat down, he is effectively declaring it's all taken care of. It's all done. Sacrifice was paid at Calvary. Demonic spirits and the power of Satan was defeated when he preached in the prison. And now he's ascended into heaven. He is set down at the right hand of the on high and all powers and authorities are subject to him. Don't just, don't just glory in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Also in the power of the ascension because in the ascension, he sits down and says, I have completed my work and the enemy is fully defeated. Now, what about this Noah and this ark? Peter is saying, why don't you stand with me? I'll close out with you standing, all right? That'll make me go faster. All right, stand with me. Um, Peter is saying to those people, I want to make this as practical as I can. It's great theology, but I want to make it practical. Peter is saying to people who are worried about persecution. They're exiles. Remember, they're living in a world to which they don't belong, just like us. 
Peter is saying, you have already experienced the salvation of Christ. And he uses Noah as the example. It's interesting. And he uses Noah and the floodwaters as a, an anti-type for baptism. That's kind of an interesting little twist there. Peter it says it's an antitype. I want you to think about what was the flood? It's a rhetorical question. I'll answer it, but think about it. What was the flood? The flood was the judgment of God, wasn't it, on the earth. He destroyed wickedness. How could one be saved from the judgment of God? Only if they went in the ark, right? Noah, his son, or Noah, his wife, their three sons and their wives, eight of them, eight souls. But they were effectively saved through the judgment waters that caused death for everyone else, but for them, salvation. So the ark was a salvific event. There was salvation that occurred. The judgment of the water um, could not touch them because they were inside the protected ark. Peter is saying, just as God delivered this minority group of Noah and his family, so the minority of believers crushed under the weight of potential persecution can rest assured that they too will be saved. See, the waters of Noah were an actual salvation event. Baptism, listen, baptism, what does baptism represent? When when one of the pastors lays you down, what, what's happening? You're dying. It's symbolizing your death. And then when we raise you back up, it's new life. We are identifying with who? Jesus, who died and was raised to new life. Now, here's the deal. If we left you in the water, you would drown, first of all. But if we left you in the water, the antitype of that would be that the judgment waters hit you. But the judgment waters didn't hit us because we placed our faith in Jesus. They hit Jesus instead on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so we don't leave you under the water because that's not our testimony. Our testimony is you died, but that's not the end. You're now raised to new life. And so Peter is saying, listen, do not fret. Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Don't fight back. Don't be hateful. Because just as Noah and his family escaped, despite the evil and the disobedience of the spirits of their day, so too believers who identify with Christ will escape the opposition. Motivated by the principalities that are evil, we will escape persecution and suffering. Not that we won't feel it, but even if it is all the way to the death of the flesh, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead raises us as well. Jesus announced that. He preached it to those spirits. You didn't win. You lost. Final victory. And that's good news for us. The source of this victory is the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. The ascension, I just want to say it one more time, is so powerful. And uh, N.T. Wright, one of the great New Testament scholars of our day, said this, to embrace the ascension 
If we charged admission, this would be worth the price of admission. All right, this quote right here. We don't charge admission, but get it anyway. To embrace the ascension is to heave a sigh of relief. To give up the struggle to be God and with it the inevitable despair at our constant failure and to enjoy our status as creatures, image-bearing creatures, but creatures nonetheless. Here's what happens. We try to fight our culture. We try to fight the opposition. We are exiles living in a world to which we don't belong. Peter is saying you don't have to fight it. You need to rest in the ascension. You don't have to try to be God and defeat it. Heave a big sigh of relief. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get stressed with what's going on in our world. And it it frustrates me and it angers me and it, it worries me and it causes anxiety. The ascension tells us, I can breathe. Jesus died. He rose. He preached that he had already been victor. And then he went and sat down by the Father with every power subject to him. And whatever opposition comes your way, it is subject to the power of the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ. You can identify with him and know that you have victory. Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you that we have hope, we have assurance. Because we are your children who identify with you. Because of that, we don't have to fret, we don't have to fear, we don't have to lash out, even when we feel ostracized. And Lord, there are people in this room that already are feeling that for a variety of reasons. They don't have to feel hopeless, they don't have to be afraid, because the one in whom they have placed their trust already suffered for us, the just for the unjust. And then he was raised to life and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, orchestrating and ordering our steps. I thank you for the hope and the assurance and the confidence that that word gives to us. And I pray, God, that it would stir in our hearts and give us the assurance that you want us to have today. Heads bowed for just one moment, please. If you're here today and you've never invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life, Say, Pastor Kevin, I'm not living for God. I know my heart's not right with him. Before I go today, I want to be sure that I'm ready to meet him. If that's you, would you slip up a hand? I'd love to pray with you. Anyone in this room, anyone in this room, say, pray for me. I want to make sure my heart is right. Anyone, I saw one. Is there anyone else that would just raise a hand and say, pray for me? I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Anyone else? Would you all pray this prayer with me just real quickly? And I want you, if you raised your hand, I want you to pray this prayer as well. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. But I know you are my Savior. I give you my heart today. Come and live inside of me. By faith. And with my mouth, I confess. You are Lord. And in my heart, I believe. You are alive. With your strength, I will serve you the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. You prayed that prayer at the end of the service. I'm going to ask you if you would just to come up to the altar. Otherwise, I won't be dismissing everybody. If you just step up and 
Pastor Josh, we'd love to talk to you and pray with you for just a moment. How many would just right up, raise hands, say, right now, I am experiencing that battle that you're talking about, but I know that Jesus is victor, and I want to walk in that victory. How many would raise your hand with me and say that? Can we sing this chorus? And just as our testimony as we close.